This is Leaving Laodicea with Steve McCraney. And this is a podcast for those who realize that apathetic, lukewarm, flannel graph faith just isn't going to cut it in the chaos that surrounds us today. We need something more, something different. So join us as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. Uh, what I'm going to share with you today, and I, this, it's not my presentation at all, but the truth I'm going to share with you from me has been profound. It's been absolutely life-changing. Uh, and it began a couple weeks ago when we talked about what worship was. Uh, we looked at it a few weeks ago, and we talked about um, biblically, uh, theologically, how people worship. David was just one example of that. And then we kind of looked at what we do for worship, kind of on a you know, a more observation kind of mode, somewhat participatory and singing some songs and stuff of that nature and, and realize that maybe what we do as worship, um, maybe it doesn't quite meet a biblical standard or maybe there's more to it that we haven't seen. And we just introduced that topic and uh, something to think about. And we, I shared with you, we'll dive into that later in the future. Last week, we looked at the church. We looked at the ecclesia. We looked at just one aspect of the church. And if you remember uh, what we looked at was the fact as believers in his church, members of his church, that it's not a building or an institution, but what it is, it's you and I as the ecclesia, it's you and I as the called out ones, those that are inhabited by the Holy spirit that have. And again, we just looked at one aspect of it, the priesthood of believers. Do you remember when we dealt with the, uh, the subject of the priesthood of believers, it means that you and I individually had direct access to God. The book of Hebrews says that we have bold access to the throne of God. I don't have to go through an intermediary, and neither do you. I don't have to go to a priest or some dead saint or a preacher or a pope or go through confessions. I, I don't have to ask Mary to ask Jesus to ask God to forgive me of my sins. Instead, I can boldly go to him. I can lay my request there. I can uh, share my burdens with him. I can ask him questions and I can expect to get answers. Therefore, when I come to church as a priesthood of, uh, of a believer, it begins to make more sense when the New Testament model is everyone has a psalm and a hymn and a praise and something of that nature. But the way we do church is some people sing, we sing with them and watch, clap if it's special music. The preacher comes up, he does the talking. You know, we listen at the very end. We tell him we either liked it or we didn't. You know, there's no interaction. There's no, let me tell you what God's done in my life. And even, even in our worship service, when you get that chance at the end, hey, tell me what God's doing in your life. We're conditioned from centuries of doing this. We don't say anything. We, we, don't, we don't talk because that's somebody else's job. And if I want to share what God's done in my life, and this person over here shares how God healed them of cancer, I don't want to share mine anymore because mine can't beat that one. And it's just part of our innate nature. It's, it's not our fault. It's just the way we've been trained. It's the way uh, the generation before us was trained, and before that, and before that, and before that. And you can take it all the way back to the early church. But the early church was different. And so what we're trying to do is understand what this entity of the church is really like, because in our culture today, with the encroaching darkness, hear me, church ain't working. 
And the reason why it's not working is there's no power. There's no power in the church, the Christian church, to even agree on issues like we should agree on, like transgenderism, like homosexuality, like what sin is. The church is splintered and divided, those that call themselves the church. It's like a dysfunctional family. You know, the darkness gets greater, but Jesus said that the gates of hell, the protective element to keep the light out of the darkness will not prevail against his church. And yet exactly the opposite is taking place and has been taking place for a long time. So is it Christ's problem? Is, is he somehow impotent? Don't think so. Is it, um, is it the Holy Spirit's problem? Is, is he like on a vacation right now? I, I don't think so. Then, then, as I shared with you, beginning all this about a month ago, the problem is not the ever-encroaching darkness. The problem is the ever-diminishing light. You know, darkness is the absence of light. And when light shines, darkness vanishes. There's no fight. There's no, you know, territorial battle here. It's just gone. And Jesus said, or and John said, that God is light so much so that in him there's no darkness at all. And so what we're doing, what the Lord is bringing me through, um, is trying to see if maybe, maybe it's our structure. Maybe it's the way we do things. Maybe it's the boxes we placed God in to make us feel comfortable that is keeping him from being the God he truly is. Maybe the problem is not him. Maybe the problem is us. I would feel better at being us than him, wouldn't you? So as we talked about last week, um, we talked about just trying to drive home the point that the church is not a building. It's not an institution. It's not a 5013C corporation. It's none of those things. It's, it's you and it's me. It's, it's re- inhabitants, vessels that are filled with the Holy Spirit, which makes us temples and sanctuaries of the Lord. When we corporately come together in this building, there's a whole bunch of churches inside this building. The, the ecclesia, as it talks about, Nowhere in scripture does it ever refer to a building or a denomination or a tax-exempt entity. I shared with you last week that what the church is is a called-out people that are equipped for fellowship in him. And when we all come together, how we should be on our own worshiping him should have how we are coming together. It it hardly ever happens that way. We substitute worship for music sometimes and, and feeling for intimacy. And anyway, this is what we talked about last week, what church is and what it's not. And so since we talked about what it's not, I thought today in just one area, we're going to look at what church is, what it is biblically. Uh, we're going to look at the passages of scripture. We're going to draw some inferences from those. Uh, it's not my opinion, but it is absolutely life-changing. It has been life-changing for me, and I'm kind of excited about uh, sharing it with you. First thing I want to start out with is simply tell you this, that every time you see an image of the church in Scripture, it is never an inanimate object. Never. It is always something living. And I just threw a bunch of these out to you. The body of Christ, the household of faith, a living temple made up of living stones. It's the bride of Christ. This is not... You know, this is not fine, not finite. These are not 
non-living entities. You know, it's, it's a vineyard or a field or an army or a city or one new man or a changed nature, a regenerated person. When you're dealing with church in scripture, it's always this living organism. You know, this supernatural thing that God puts together where he draws people from, you know, all these different races and socioeconomic backgrounds and, and how they were and now how they are. And he kind of brings them together like iron filings brought by, to a, a magnet from everywhere to come together, supernaturally drawn, inhabited by his spirit to form this family, this body, this living organism where there's no human head. The living organism is Christ himself. We have taken that. Again, we didn't do it. It was done a long time ago since the third century, we have taken that and we've turned it all into a religion where we come for a serve us. And the services are pretty much the same. We sing some songs. We go through some liturgy, depending on what persuasion you're from. We maybe take the Lord's supper every Sunday or once a month or once a quarter. It doesn't really matter. Maybe have a fellowship meal. Maybe we don't. There's a you know exposition of scripture, which is good. There's a time for you to reflect on the goodness of God, which is good. Maybe participate in some songs. There's a prayer usually given in the beginning and in the end, an offering is collected and we do this every single week, you know, and you know, we, we only do it on Sunday. We can't do it on another day of the week. So we do it on Sunday because traditionally that's how the church met. And, and then, you know, we add to that our, our Bible devotions during the week. Maybe we go to a home Bible study or something of that nature, listen to some podcast, and we come together and do it again and again and again. And none of us, again, broad brush, if you're different, I, I apologize. Most of us never expected to be different. We never expect a great awakening to break out. We never expect the power of God that lives in us to, to manifest itself. We never really expect revival to happen. And all of a sudden, the stories we hear about, you know, in the past take place here. And we're, you know, it's six o'clock at night and we're just praising the Lord and nobody ever wants to leave. And the, the, the place is glowing and like in the book of Acts, shaken by, by the roots. And, you know, we read about those things and we wish it would happen, but it's never happened to us. Never happened to anybody that we know. Uh, hasn't really happened since the first and second great awakening on a larger, on a, even a regional scale in our nation. And so we just assume this is it. You know, we tell people about the joys of Christ, but somehow we're still struggling like everybody else. And then we wonder why our kids, when they get 18 years old, don't want to come back anymore. I mean, it's a sad state of events our nation is in right now. The church is in right now. And the more I look at this, what the scripture says, I'm beginning to see that maybe, maybe part of it is the way we have organized it and viewed it and controlled it in such a way that it fits into a format like a business that we feel comfortable with rather than this pulsating entity that Christ has created. A couple of things we know about the church. Number one, it is Christ's body. It's not ours. We know that, uh, it's made up of the, those that are drawn by the Holy Spirit. Membership in his church is brought about supernaturally. It's not brought about by just, I want to go to church and become a member because it seems like a politically correct thing to do, although we allow that to happen all the time. We, uh, we know that when um, the church comes together, that what should happen is the church should reflect 
the nature and character of the one who created it. It should reflect the nature and character of the one who inhabited us and drew us together as an assembly and a body and an ecclesia. It should not reflect us. It should reflect Christ. There's a passage in scripture in um, 1 Corinthians that talks about, but we have the mind of Christ. You remember reading that chapter two? What does that mean? You're going to find out how exactly what that means. The church should reflect the collective mind and personality and relationship wise of the Lord Jesus Christ, because it's his church. And if the Holy Spirit lives in us and changes us, it changes us to be more like him. So if we're individually more like him, then when we come together, we will be corporately more like him. And the more we are like him, the more powerful it becomes against the power of darkness. Would you not agree? But that involves a change on our part. It involves, um, you know, seeing things differently, a surrender of ourselves to him and broad brush again. Most of us aren't willing to do that. We don't mind surrendering to him the things that don't really matter to us, but we're not going to surrender to him our future. We're not going to surrender him our jobs. You know, what to go in there and share Jesus said, I could lose my job. I, I'm not going to do that. We're not going to surrender to him our money. You know, we're not going to surrender to him our, uh, our spare time because we want to give God part of our life, generally speaking, but not all of our life, because that's what everybody else does. That's what's expected. Church is not something we are. It's something we do. It's not being the church we talked about last week, but attending the church. And it's been that way my whole life. When I've been pastoring for, I don't know, almost 40 years. And it's been that way. I mean, I, I didn't know any other way. That's just the way everybody else has done it. And not what the scripture says. So I go back again for the 60th time. I go back to Acts chapter 2, and I'm asking the Lord, Lord, I need to, I need to understand why they were like they were and we're not. I'm afraid to be like they were. I don't trust you enough or anybody else enough <clears throat> to act like they did. Why was that done? How did that happen? What did they have that we struggle with corporately? We struggle with individually. And so we're going to look at Acts chapter 2, just a couple passages here. And you know the story. I've preached this to you at least 15 times in the last 20 years. It's some of my favorite passages in... Um, the book of Acts. I have been, I have been criticized. Um, uh, written a couple of books, and I've been criticized by some of those. And the major criticism that I get on some of my writing, on some blog posts and podcasts and stuff like that, is uh, McCraney's problem is he has an idealized view of church, an idealized view of church. That means that somehow my view of church is greater than and better than what everybody else's view of church is. An idealized view of church. And so I tried to understand that criticism, and uh, it's true. My view of church is exactly what it says here in the scripture compared to what we're living now. And if, you, if what we're living now is the norm, then what I view, I think, is an idealized view of church. That's what we could be. I think that's exactly what Christ views also. And so as we're looking at this, I want you to, not ask 
how, but I want you to think, is it even possible? And if it is possible, is it something I would want? You know the story. The, uh, Jesus has ascended into heaven. These guys were given instructions not to do anything until the Holy Spirit fell. They were still acting in the flesh in Acts chapter 1. It's in Acts chapter 2 that the Holy Spirit fell. There's 120 of them in this upper room, and all of a sudden this event takes place. It says the day of Pentecost had fully come. One big thing that happened is they were all in one accord and one place. They held their little group together in prayer for 10 whole days. I actually think that's powerful that uh, they didn't break off in factions or get arguments about politics or stuff of that nature. They were in one accord in one place. And then all of a sudden this event took place and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and it sat on each one of them. Not the pastor, not the pope, not the elders or the deacons, not the apostles. Every single one of them received exactly what the other got, was with the Holy Spirit. God did not show favorites. God simply poured himself out on every single person in that room, from the oldest to the youngest, from the richest to the poorest, to the most educated to the least educated, to the ones who had followed Jesus the longest and the ones that just came to faith in Christ maybe the day before his ascension. All of them were baptized by the Holy Spirit, just like what happened to you when you came to Christ. They were all, not just some, but all filled with the Holy Spirit. And then they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterances. And this is where we get whacked on. We forget, we look, we quit focusing on the big picture and start talking about tongues. Was it regular dialogues like it says in the rest of that? Or was it glossolalia where they're, they're speaking, you know, unknown tongues? I mean, what is it? Tongues for today? Tongues? Like, who cares? We're talking about him building the church. That's not an issue to get sidetracked on. In the middle of their midst, Peter stands up. By the way, we'll deal with that issue later. Peter stands up and he preaches this sermon. And remember, if I shared with you, if you take out the scripture passages, this sermon is 297 words long. A blog post, a small blog post is supposed to be between four and 600 words in order to get the most SEO ratings, in case you didn't know that. And so this is a small blog post, the blurb with some scripture verses stuck in there. He's up there and he preaches this message. And all of a sudden the Holy Spirit falls, conviction falls in a mighty way. Um, The people cried out, what should we do? Peter was very blunt with them, you know, um, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you shall receive what we received because we're not taking any credit for this. It's the Holy Spirit who did all this for the promise. Verse 39 is for you and your children and to all who are far off and as many as our Lord God will call. And then he continues preaching. And we don't know how long this took because he's with many other words, he testified and exhorted them saying, be safe from this perverse generation the exact message we need to give to our teenagers and to our people in our 20s and to our culture right now, be saved from this perverse generation. Well, be saved to what? What you have? No, it's better than what I had. Be saved to what you could have because it ain't working. It's not working. 
the way it could be with the Holy Spirit in the center of everything we do. And then 3,000 people get saved. 3,000 people. Well, who are these people? Well, you can go back in the first part of this chapter and you can read all the places they were from. Cyrene, Rome, Cretans, Arabs, uh, tons of people speaking all these different languages. That's why they, uh, they preached in tongues in the beginning for all these different dialects. They're at Pentecost. These Jews had come from all the outlying area, part of the current day dysphoria at that time. They had come from one of the mandatory, uh, mandatory feasts of Israel at that time. They didn't have all their possessions with them. They had their credit cards and they had you know, some money and they made some reservations in hotels. They were going to spend a couple of days in the city, go through the festival and then go back home. And then all of a sudden this event took place and they got saved. I mean, they didn't know anybody. Many of them didn't even speak the, the language. They had no homes. They had no, no food. They didn't have anything. They were like on a pilgrimage, had enough to get there and enough to go home. And yet all of a sudden they got saved. And it says, those who gladly received his word were baptized. This indicates how serious they were saved. Because to be a Jew and be baptized means that you declare yourself like a Gentile. Because if you were a Gentile and you wanted to become a Jew, you could never become a racial Jew. You had to become like a second-class Jew. They called them proselytes at that time. So you had to follow all the laws and go through all this cleansing. But eventually you had to be immersed and baptized, which was to wash off the stain of your ethnic being a Gentile and raised up again. And so these Jews, these Jews now at the festival of Pentecost, who now got saved, followed through immediately with baptism, letting the entire world know that I know that uh, we're committed to this and the rest of the world thinks we're nothing. They're baptized. About that day, 3,000 souls. That's an interesting word. Paul doesn't, or Luke doesn't use the word souls, but just a couple times in scripture to indicate People, you know, we read this and we go souls. He really means people, but that's not what the word says. It doesn't say people, you know, it says souls were added to them. All right. We're going to dive into that in a few minutes. The, the uh, word is suke. It means breath and spirit is the immaterial part of man. All right. We read that on the surface and we go, what that means. 3000 people got saved. True, but it wasn't 3000 people. Luke said it was 3000 Parts of a person. It was 3,000 souls. It was a supernatural act of God. The church has now grown from 120 to 3,000 in one afternoon. And I can't imagine what church must have been like that night. What do you do? These people had come to celebrate a Jewish festival and they met the living Lord Jesus, whom all the Jews hated and just put to death 50 days earlier. And now all of a sudden, everything changes. Where do I go? Who do I talk to? Where am I supposed to live? I mean, I, I don't even understand. I need to know more about this. This supernatural thing has happened to me. I don't have any understanding of Christ. I don't, I don't even, I just heard about this Jesus person. I wasn't with him when he did all the miracles, although I've heard stories about that. I mean, what am I supposed to do? Where do we go from there? Or the next morning, where'd they eat? Where'd they have lunch? Did they worship anywhere? And if so, where'd they go? I mean, the fact is, um, the disciples had an issue. This is a massive amount of people. This is a small concert. 
you know, 3,000 people, old people, young people, people with little kids, the people that just had maybe two changes of clothes. They had some you know, animals with them. I and mean, what are they supposed to do? They're supposed to follow Peter somewhere. Where, Peter? Where are you staying? Where are the rest of the disciples? I want to hear more about this Jesus because my total life has changed. Do I want to go back home and do what? Or do I want to follow this living Lord that has changed my life? What happens the next day? What happens the day after that? What does the church do? 3,000 people that is going to get bigger every single day. That's how the book, that's how Acts chapter 2 ends. With God adding to the church daily those who are being saved. So you want to know what the church was like? You want to know what the early church was like, the way God designed church? The only picture we have of a prototype of what the church looks like, it's right here. It doesn't look like what we do. All that was changed when Constantine made Christianity the state religion. And we'll talk about that maybe, that what Constantine did for a political mover, maneuver, he, um, he decided to, we're going to make Christianity the state religion right now. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to take all these pagan temples. We're going to turn them into Christian temples. Now Christians worship in temples. And do it before because they were being persecuted. But now they worship in temples. What are we going to do with all this, these priests? You know what? They're not going to be pagan priests anymore. We're going to anoint you and make you Christian priests. And all of a sudden, the church now became under the thumb of the state. And then everything changed. And, and we've been kind of living in that ever since. Look what the church was like back then. It says, and they, this is the ecclesia. This is the assembly of called out ones. This is every single believer in Christ. And they continued steadfastly, and it lists the four things they did. I thought this word was uh, interesting. Continued steadfastly. Well, it means I'm going to show up, and I'm going to be on time, and I'm going to sit in my pew, and, and I'm going to take my notes, and then I'm going to go home and, I guess, apply it to myself and, you know, come back next week. That's not what they did. They continued steadfast. It means there was pressure against them. It means it was difficult because the word means to endure. It means to hold fast against something that's pulling you in another direction. It means remain or to preserve, persevere in some sort of activity. It means to devote yourself to it. I'm committed to this more than anything. So this early church did not do how church is for us today, which is just something that we do once or twice a week. But church was their life. It was their, I need to understand about this new God that I've been introduced to, this Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't know anything about him, but I've surrendered my life to him. How do I hear him? Well, what was he like? I mean, I wish I'd have been here and met him. You need to tell me I'm this, I'm this insatiable sponge wanting to know more about Jesus. And we can't end now. You know, let's just bring pizza in and we'll eat. I want to hear more and more and more. Well, what about your fields? I mean, you got fields at home, which may be 150 miles away, a, a week-long journey that needs, I don't care about my fields. This is amazing. Jesus talked about that. A man who finds the treasure, the gospel in a field, sells everything he has to buy that field and get that treasure. That's what they did back then. The church today, at least in America, we just kind of incorporated into our life 
to kind of make our life better. And we log out for him 15 minutes in the morning, maybe a prayer at night, and then one hour or two hours on Sunday. And maybe, maybe if you're super spiritual, a Bible study during the week. Maybe we'll put a fish thing on the back of our car, listen to 106.9 on the radio, and watch Christmas movies at Christmas time. And that's okay if we want a powerless church. All I've ever known, all I've ever been taught, all I ever knew, that's what you're supposed to do until we go back and look at the scripture. And they continued steadfast in the apostles' doctrine and to teaching, teaching about Jesus. And, and I don't think the apostles at that time were teaching them theology. I think they were teaching about Jesus. They're teaching just what they knew. You know, I, I, don't, know about, uh, I don't know about election you know, I'll understand that. Paul will actually be revealed about the election. But what I do understand is once I was blind and now I see. This is what Christ has done for me. I'm a living testimony of a changed man and you can be the same way. Here's how I struggled. You know, I denied Christ. All the disciples ran and fled from him and yet he rules supreme in our heart. And in fellowship, ah, oh, what a word. We think fellowship means getting along with people we only see on Sunday, you know, just kind of talking and having some fun and talking about third party things. We talk about politics. We talk about hunting and fishing and cars. We talk about our kids playing ball. You know, we talk about businesses we're doing and we're eating a meal together. and We're all kind of committed to Christ and hey, how you doing and all that kind of stuff. And hardly ever. And I'm, I know I'm not party to every discussion and fellowship, but I know in my own, and I'm the pastor, hardly ever when we have a fellowship together are any of the, conversa any of the conversations I have about Christ. I mean, they're not. They're about other stuff. Hey, how's your week been? Pretty good. How about yours? Oh, okay. And, you know, because we're focusing on the old Baptist motif of, you know, chicken and food and, and have that kind of fellowship. And that's all we've ever known. That's all I've ever known. And I, I'm, I'm more guilty than any of you in here because I'm the pastor. I should know better. It's not what it meant biblically. The word is koinonia, and it has to do with something we share in, like a family. We've, it's participation together. It means a partnership, a mutual close relationship. It means communion. It means that our lives are so intertwined, and Christ is in the center of them, and I have the mind of Christ, and you have the mind of Christ, and Peter had the mind of Christ, and one of those guys from Parthia who you know, just came for Pentecost. He has now the mind of Christ. And so when they came together, they were mutually tied together by a power and a person greater than any of them. The Lord Jesus Christ. One suffers, they all suffer. One has a need, they all have a need. You know, one praises, they all praise. It's part of the body of Christ made up of all these parts, and every single part is just as vital as the other. That's koinonia. We didn't grow up that way. We grew up with um, the guy that can sing really good and play the instruments. He's the worship guy, the pastor that can speak pretty good and, you, you know, went to seminary. He's the pastor guy. You have some of the elders and deacons, which may be really good in business or stuff of like that. They were like those guys. Everybody else, you know, we just, we just participate. We just come. We just watch. You know, occasionally we'll teach a Sunday school class or pass out bulletins or stuff of that nature. But, you know, it's not like 
like those people of the body of Christ, they're the most important and the rest of us are like, what, a pancreas that you can't even see until it goes bad and then the whole body dies? But that's not how, how it is. It's, it's not the mouth or the eye or the ears that are most important. It's every part functioning. As I shared with you last week, in order to experience the fullness of Christ, like in this congregation, every one of us need to experience what the other parts of the body have experienced with Christ. And I used Carol as an example last week. If, if we don't know about Carol's relationship with Christ and what Christ has done in her life and what she's seen and heard and how she testifies about his goodness, there's no way we can experience the fullness of Christ because all you're getting is mine. And none of us is getting hers. Do you understand what I'm saying? And if every one of us have a bold access to the Father, then her testimony about Jesus is of no less value than Billy Graham's. And until we have them all, or freedom to share that, we'll never experience the fullness of Christ. Never. They participate in the breaking of bread. That can mean meals. I think it has to do with actually the Lord's Supper and, of course, in prayers. Okay, I have some questions. You know, uh, what, what was happening to them spiritually? A group of strangers. Now, now a group of them had, uh, had known the Lord for quite a while. Maybe they were 50 or 60 that had been with Jesus for a long time. Uh, then you had, of course, the 11 that were there um, since Judas was gone. And then you had all these 3,000 people come and change everything. And, and so what, what, what would happen if God moved in a, in a group of people like that? And we look at the very next verse. It says, and fear came upon every soul. Fear. This is this reverence of God, this fear of God, this dread of who he is, this amazing feeling that you get when you come in the presence of a deity where, you know, even, even, the holiest people around like Isaiah and people of that nature are just, I'm undone because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among men of unclean lips. And now I've seen the Lord. And I mean, what would happen? Everything would change. I want you to notice this verse. It says, and fear came upon, that's pos, that's all, each, every, without exception, every single person there, the fear of God came upon their soul. Well, You could have just said every person because that's really what you mean. No, if the Holy Spirit meant every person and we just wanted to think about a person, he would have said person. But instead he said soul. That's twice he said that. And you'll find the idea of, well, that's just Luke's word for people. No. Why don't you go through the rest of the book of Acts and the gospel of Luke and see how many times he uses that. It's specific here. He came upon what changes a man. He came upon the part of someone that has to be regenerated, has to be changed in order for a transformation to take place. The soul, suke, it means the heart, mind, uh, your, your emotions, your will, and your volition. Everything about you is changed. The fear of God came upon how I feel about me, how I feel about God, how I feel about my stuff, how I feel about trusting God and trusting other people, what I'm going to do, what I have the power to do, and what I want to do. It's there for a reason. 
Fear came upon every soul. And then, of course, you had miracles and signs. You know, a, a miracle is a, uh, are many wonders, which is a miracle. A sign is a miracle that points to a purpose like who God is. And it was done through the apostles. It came upon every person internally. Internally. And then all of a sudden, they changed. They absolutely changed. There were people in that group that were wealthy. There were people in that group that weren't. There were people in that group that were just strangers. There were people in that group that maybe belonged to, maybe they were in our vernacular, they were real liberal, woke Democrats that just got saved and are coming in here with Rush Limbaugh, you know, and and all of a sudden, who cares about that? We're bound together now by something greater than that, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Lord, if that's true, and I, I know it's true, I see it in Scripture, and I've, again, I've preached this 15 times from different nuances. How would people act differently? What if they all had the mind of Christ? What if they all trusted you explicitly? I mean, what would happen? Well, would they be giving or selfish? Well, they'd be giving. Why? Well, because they realize that their whole life belongs to the Lord. Everything they have is just rubbish and garbage. It doesn't really mean anything that he's going to take care of every one of their needs. The verses we struggle with, like, for example, um, you know, uh, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. All the things we worry about. I mean, they encountered this living Lord Jesus, that is fear of God that changed him on the inside out. God was manifesting himself in their midst. It was greater than anything they had ever had. They're willing to give and sell everything they had to achieve that pearl of great price, to achieve that treasure in that field. The same choice we have, but we choose not to do that because... You just don't. I mean, you don't. The only people who live like that are the Branch Davidians or a bunch of hippies in the 60s. You know, we just, we just don't, we don't do that. Instead, every man for himself, every man doing what he needs to do, what's mine is mine and what yours is yours, and I won't mess with yours and you don't mess with mine. And if I give you everything I have, then I'm going to be like you. And I won't be like you. Independence, entrepreneurship. I mean, that's our cultural. I mean, that's what we teach my kids, what I taught my kids nothing wrong with that. But then Christ came in and turned everything upside down. So how were they? Would they demand their rights? Would they trust God with everything? Again, think about what they're doing here. How is God going to meet their needs? I started asking some questions. All these people live in Jerusalem? No. I mean, some of them did. Some of them did. Do all have houses? No. I mean, the rich people lived in Jerusalem did. Everybody else didn't. I mean, obviously, there were some people that had houses because the church was meeting in somebody's house and Peter was in prison and Peter was brought back and knocked on the door and a lady came. Do you remember the story? And thought it was a ghost. Did, did all of them have to speak the same language? No. Did all of them have the same amount of money? No. Did all of them have the same needs? Absolutely. Absolutely. And yet God had to somehow take this group of people of individuals who didn't even know each other not like we know each other, didn't even know each other. And somehow God had through them, because he didn't rain down manna. He didn't bring in quail. He had to, through them, take care of the needs of everybody and do it in such a way that there was no backbiting and no arguing. And well, this is mine and that's not yours. And I can't believe you're doing this. And the one time in a couple chapters later that that actually happens when two people sell a piece of property, come back and lie about all the proceeds, probably one of the biggest gifts the church has received 
forever. God judged it so great because it was, it was trying to destroy the foundation of this koinonia that he killed them both. Do you remember? And then it says great fear broke out in the church. Boy, I bet. I don't think I'd come back. I mean, what was, how did you handle that God? What was your plan? Well, here's my plan. I am going to change you from the inside out. I am going to let you trust me more than you've ever trusted me before. And better than that, I'm going to let you trust me so much that even if this person over here, whom you also have to trust, turns out to be untrustworthy, you can still rely on me and not get your eyes off me and on them. Paul talked about that. You know, if you don't work, you don't eat. We got some freeloaders here that are just taking from the common good and not working. And so, but nevertheless, God is sovereign. Here's what happened. It says, now all who believed were together and had all things in common. This is all, pos. And when we get to the word all things, it's actually hapas. And it's the same word as pos, only much stronger. It's like all on steroids. And the Holy Spirit is letting us know that they held nothing back. Nothing back. That person that made $10 million a year and lived in a big, it's yours. Barnabas, who just sold a rental property, but he was living, uh, trying to live on, it's yours, God. Those that had nothing, God, I'm just, I'm yours, whatever I have. And they sold their possessions. Oh my gosh. This is a cult. This is a cult. Nobody does this. And divided them among all. What, according to your wants? No, according to your needs. God was sovereign in all of this. Always bothered me. Does that bother you? Always bothered me. You know, I would love to live in a community like that, but I don't trust people enough to do that. I mean, I don't. I'm, I would end up giving everything that I have, and somebody else would then take it all and sell it on eBay, you know, or, or something. And then I would, uh, and I would have nothing. And so I'd be just as bad as everybody else. And I don't want to do that because I worked really hard for what I got. And you worked really hard for what you got. And what belongs to you is you. And what belongs to me is me. And why don't we just take a portion of that and throw it into a common pot and then let everybody do that kind of stuff. But you live your life. I'll live my life because that's the safest, most secure, doesn't demand a whole lot of trust uh, from me to you, or it doesn't demand a whole lot of trust from me to God. And the church for centuries has decided that's how we're going to live. We'll just build these big temples and edifices all over the place. And so your membership now is based on, you know, I want to go to this church or that church or this church. And I can transfer anytime that I want because I'm part of an organization and not really part of a organism and, and we're okay. But in the book of Acts, in a hostile environment, when God first created the church, he did it differently. So I... I asked some questions. What made them do this? I know their soul was changed, but shouldn't my soul be changed too? But it's not because it's, we just don't live this way. Um, so what, what, what changed? I mean, did, did, was this demanded by, the, the, by the, the, the elders to do that? No, one demanded. It was some rule for the early church. No. Did everybody do this willingly? It sure appears like that. Because the one person who didn't do it willingly and acted like it did, and if you remember in Ananias and Sapphira, they didn't even have to give anything. And when they gave it, all they could do is say, hey, you know what? Here's $60,000. We're going to keep the other $300,000 for us for a rainy day or if this doesn't work out. That's cool. 
That's cool. It's not under compulsion to do this because they lied about it. God judged them. I mean, what prompted them to live this way? They'd obviously experienced something that, that either we haven't or what well, times have changed. Really? I look at what we're going to talk about this next, next week. I look at what the Lord did through this church. And I look at what the Lord's doing through the church in America today. And I'd like to be part of that one. Wouldn't you? How's this work? And I'm only going to interest, introduce this to you. But I want you to know that um, you know, the building blocks of a human being is uh, they call it the DNA. It's the nature. It's this double chain helix thing they talked about in high school that I don't even remember. But it determines who you are. Your DNA determines how tall you are, um, you know, what color eyes you have and hair and all that kind of stuff. And, and you know, if you think about it, uh, there's a DNA in Christ also. The DNA in Christ, not the physical DNA, but the DNA in Christ lets us know what he's like. Uh, he's giving, he's loving, he's trusting, he's altruistic. He has the, the Holy Spirit, gives us gifts. Those gifts are the manifestation of who God is, love, joy. But you can't come up with those things on your own. You can love some people, but not all people. You can have joy in some situations, but not all situations. You can be peaceful in some situations and other situations make you worry and bite your fingernails. I mean, the fact is, these attributes, this, these spiritual gifts come from God. It's almost like God is allowing us to experience his character. And if you really think about it, God is not a single God, but God is a, a God of plurality. The whole idea of the Trinity. You know, um, there is one God. There are three persons in God. Each person is separate and indivisible from the others. Yet there is one God. There's not, there's a relationship that takes place within the Trinity. I mean, you don't have God, the father calling all the shots, the Holy spirit, you know, siding with the father and Jesus going, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not sure that's the that way we ought to do that. And you find there's no argument. There's no headship. There's no, there's no boards or, or there's no voting, you know, two votes to one. How are we going to do this? Let's, uh, you know, we're going to save Judas. Uh, three say no. And so we move on. It doesn't work that way. It works that way in our life, but it's not that way in the, uh, in the Godhead. There's a relationship that takes place there. So I started thinking about the relationship within the Godhead, within the Trinity. There's mutual love. There's mutual partnership. Never in the Godhead do you have Jesus saying, I came down here to call my own shots. I'm going to do what I want to do, and I'll bless the Father. I won't bless the Father. Jesus comes down here and says, I only came to do the will of the Father. Because everything we do together, we do in communion. We do in partnership. We do as one mind, one person, because there's one God manifests himself in three different persons, totally separate, each one individually God, not subordinate to the others, yet one God. All have the same mind, the mind of God. You find that there's passages just, just, just in John where the son lives by the life of the father. The son shares and expresses the glory of the father. The son lives within the father and the father within the son. It says that the son lives in complete dependence upon the father. The son reflects the father to the world indeed. Uh, in, in word indeed, I'm showing you the world who the father is. And the father glorifies the son. Here's my son in whom I'm well pleased. And the son spends his life exalting the father. 
It is that kind of partnership. It is that kind of unity. It is that kind of relationship within the Godhead. And we are supposed to have that same DNA living in us. The Bible never says, here's a set of rules that I want you to live by that will make you like God, make you act like me. So when the world sees you, they'll see me if you follow these rules. Instead, what he says, it's impossible for you to follow. You can't even follow the Ten Commandments. You can't even love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to do it for you. I am going to inhabit you with me myself. I am going to let the Holy Spirit live in you. So you'll be changed from the inside out. You'll be regenerated. You'll be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And all you have to do is stay connected to me like a, like a branch on a vine in John 15. I will produce the fruit in you. I'm just letting you bear it. In other words, I will do all the work because I'm the only one who can. I will manifest spiritual gifts through in you that come from me, and I will let you experience the kind of fellowship and koinonia and partnership and communion I have with the, in the Godhead with each other, because I'm living in you. That is the only way to explain what happened in Acts chapter 2. That is exactly how they lived. Wisdom of God, 1 John 1, comes from the Holy Spirit. Promises come from the Holy Spirit uh, that lives within us. Gifts of the Spirit, they're gifts to us, manifested by the Holy Spirit. They're not our gifts. We don't love people and forgive people that much. Even Peter's like, how long should I forgive people? Like seven times? No, seven times 70. I can't, but you will, because I'll forgive them through you if you just abide in me. So I'm running out of time here. So I want to read this to you. This is from a very famous theologian who talks about what the Holy, what the Trinity is all about. And I think it's just a very short leap. And again, we're just introducing this today to show what kind of relationship he expects in his church from his children. Here's what it says about the Holy Spirit. I mean, about the Trinity. It says the oneness of God is not the oneness of a distinct self-contained individual like us. It is the unity of a community of a persons who love each other and live together in harmony. Nothing that any of us have ever experienced in church. As a matter of fact, if you talk to most people, you will find that the biggest joys and the biggest hurts they've ever had in life is in church. Is you've either you know, had this great time with a group of people, and then they bring a pastor in here that some old people don't like, and they run him out or whatever it is. I'm sharing my story now. Anyway, it's, uh, it, it, it happens. Or, the, or you've been crushed and been betrayed by someone you thought was a brother. Not what it talks about here. The oneness of God is not a oneness of a distinct self-contained individual. It is a unity of a community of persons who love each other and live together in harmony. What? They are what they are only in relationship to one another. There is no solitary person separated from the others. 
No above, nor below, no first, second, third in importance, no ruling and controlling and being ruled and controlled. This is not how the Trinity functions. It's how we function, but it's not how the Trinity functions. It continues. No position of privilege to be maintained over and against others. No question of conflict concerning who is in charge. No need to assert independence and authority of one at the expense of someone else's. I have a right. I have an opinion. This is the way I want it to be. You never find that in the Trinity. Never. There is only fellowship and communion of equals who share all that they are and have in their communion with each other, each living with and for the others in mutual openness, self-giving love and support, each free, not from, but for each other. This is how the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are related in the inner circle of the Godhead. And it is exactly the paradigm that God laid out for his church. He is the uh, one who gave church life. He is the body and we are parts of that body. He is in complete harmony with the rest of the, uh, the Godhead in complete harmony with himself. And we as a part of his body, should not be afraid of other parts of his body that that'll be more important than we are, you know, kick me out or something of that nature, because we defer to the body himself, to Christ himself. And if we allow ourselves and we all come to a unity of the oneness of Christ, to a complete man, to a perfect man, to having the mind of Christ, then we would all think the same. We would be the same, especially regarding the, the goal and uh, position of his church, because we would all be like him individually. Susan's an eye, you're an ear, you know, I'm a nose or whatever it is. We have different functions, but we're all equally part of his body. And when people are like that, all of a sudden, you see these events like you have in Acts chapter two. And by the way, just so that you'll not think that's an isolated event, if you turn to Acts chapter four, don't do it now because I'm closing. If you turn to Acts chapter four, you find that after this great persecution took place and they were told not to speak or teach anymore in the name of Jesus, they came back to the house and told the disciples that and they weren't afraid of what they were gonna lose. They prayed for more boldness and the house was shaken and it repeats what's happening here, that they shared everything they have and, and gave to others because... Um, and all belonged to God anyway. And people just continually got saved to the point that they would lay sick people out on the street sometimes. And if Peter's shadow would pass over them, they would be healed. All of it pointing to Christ. They looked at this community of believers, the, the, um, the lost world. I, oh my gosh, who are these people? I want to be so part of what's going on there. The world looks at the church today. They say there's more camaraderie in a bar than there is on a Sunday morning in a church. Isn't that true? Doesn't have to be that way. Now, I've got a lot more to share with you that I will do at another time. Um, but um, I just want you to begin thinking that way. Thinking that maybe, just maybe, church could be different the way it is. Now, I do want to go ahead and give you a caveat. It'll never happen in here. It'll never happen in here until it happens somewhere else first. You will never worship the Lord in here until you worship him at home. 
You know, until you're willing just to sing songs to him, maybe in your garage by yourself with just the silence and the acapella reverberating off the wall and, and just find your joy in singing just for him. You'll never do it in here with other people because you're concerned about what they're thinking, what they're doing. Unless you open up the word of God and surrender yourself to him and have him speak to you and change you. And so much so that you want to tell your, your best friend about what God has shown in your life until that happens to you individually. It'll never happen in here. Never. Cause in here is just a, a continuation of what's supposed to happen in your life alone. I don't believe if we ever get to the point where, um, as I shared a little last week that we come together as a group and there's a freedom to share. There's a freedom to, uh, I think, I really think God said this to me this week. Well, tell us what it is. And then to be able to have that thought placed under the scrutiny of the, of the Holy Spirit and of God's word to determine whether that happened or not, or whether God really spoke to you or not, or whatever it is. Do we, do we grow into that kind of freedom until that happens in a small group? And it may be just your family into a small group. You'll ne- we'll never do it corporately. It starts from the small and then expands to the large. So I have no agenda. It's not like we're going to, you know, all of a sudden start changing things here because it has to start here first. Your homework is simply this. We all belong to an organization. Um, We all belong to a a corporation, an entity, something even recognized by the government for tax-exempt status. We all have. We've all belonged to those our entire life. You know, uh, guys that want to be pastors go to seminary so they can get degrees so an organization will hire them, give them certain vacation days and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's just the way church has always been, always been. But I think God wants us to belong to an organism. I wants to belong to a living entity, he wants to belong to something where he is the head and all of us have a vital part and everybody shares and everybody gives and everybody manifests who he is. All I want you to do is just think, is this possible? Is it possible? Even just a small group, me and my family, is it possible to experience the fullness of Christ on this earth before he comes? Because until you believe it's even possible, you'll never make any efforts to examine it any further. And if you come to the conclusion that yes, and I believe that the book of Acts is not an anomaly, I believe that maybe that's how God wants it to be reflected, that maybe the relationship that they had in the Godhead of that same DNA is now invested in me because the Holy Spirit lives in me. God himself lives in me. And he wants me to have that same kind of relationship with other people. If you think that's even possible, then we will talk more about this when we meet again and see where God moves. Amen. Let me pray.